Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Man, we're going to be looking at Mark 8, 22 to 30. For those who are a little newer, if you haven't been around recently, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark actually a little bit over a year. So we're nearing the halfway point here. We're going to look today at a very unusual passage, but a very critical passage in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. It'll be up on the screen. It's also in your little booklet, or you can follow along in your Bible. Hear now the word of the living, saving God. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, and he led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, this weekend, as you can hear from my voice and as you just saw, we've you know, had our 40th reunion and we've had the privilege of uh, Lou and his wife, Deb, who used to be part of our congregation, but way back when we were mids and we've worshiped with them in San Clemente, we've been together and, um, and with Lou and I, believe it or not, it's a competition for who can talk more, who can <laughs> go back and forth. That's why we got along so well as roommates. And you will be pleased to know we've solved all the problems plaguing our civilization over the last few days. Uh, And we've actually been talking a lot about what we've been reading and things that have, we've found insightful. And uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of this in after hours, but one of the things we've talked about is some of the things that you're trying to read take really careful reading because great literature uh, oftentimes requires you reading it and even sometimes rereading it to really understand what's going on. And one of the things I've learned in this journey through Mark's gospel, really taking the time that we've done, is Mark is written in such a way Uh, that he is requiring us to do a slow, careful, sustained, and even repetitive reading to pick up on what he's saying. And Mark does this three different ways to kind of remind us. Number one, Mark uses a lot of parables. 
In fact, you know, he kind of says Jesus doesn't teach anything without being a parable, and almost everything Jesus has said in this gospel is spoken in a parable form. You remember there's the, the wild story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman where she comes and she's got the daughter who's demonized, and we're expecting Jesus to immediately say, let me run over there and, and drive the demon out, and he doesn't. He speaks a parable. You know, hey, it's not good for me to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And you're like, what in the world? And Mark doesn't explain why, but he's wanting us to enter in just like the woman had to. And you remember, she has the distinction of being the first person in the gospel that gets a parable. She understands it. She enters in. And you remember she replies and says, yes, Lord, but, but even the crumbs fall from the table and the dogs get to eat those. I'm, I'm not asking you to do anything. Just let the crumbs fall down. So Mark teaches very often in parables and he doesn't always explain them. Really with the exception of the parable of the sower, most of them he's requiring us to meditate on. Secondly, Mark uniquely oftentimes does not include clarifying statements. So for example, when the woman responds well, in Matthew we're told Jesus says, ah, oh, you've got great faith. Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark says, I want you to chew on this. If you think about it, if you read it and reread it and understand the story as I'm telling it along, you'll get that she's got great faith but I'm not gonna put it right there on the thing. If you remember the parable when the disciples uh, have watched the Pharisees arguing with Jesus again and he, he uses another parable about bread and says watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew tells us that yeast is the teaching. Mark does not. Mark says I want you to experience it like the disciples did. You gotta think about this. And then the third way that um, Mark does this is his literary structure. And Mark does both uh, what we've referred to as sandwiches. You remember he'll start a story, interrupt it with another story, then complete the first story. And he's saying, read these two together. He also has a, an interesting complex literary structure, particularly in this point. Remember we've been tracking along and Mark 6 and 7 and Mark 8 are a double pair all the way through. So there's two feedings of the crowd, which most of us are familiar with, but there's also two crossings of the sea. There are two conflicts with the Pharisees, what's clean and unclean, and are you gonna give us a sign from heaven? There are two parables that revolve around bread, bread falling from the table, the yeast of the Pharisees, and then there are two healings that go on and two confession of faiths. And we're gonna deal with both of those today. And in every case, Mark is saying, when you're reading the second feeding, tie it with the first. When you're reading the, uh, you know, the second crossing the sea, remember the first. When you are doing the second conflict with the Pharisees, do it with the first. And this is very, very important because this tells us as we come to this story of the healing of the blind man, we need to remember the healing of the deaf man. And we need to have them tied together because if we don't, we may misunderstand what's going on. And we're gonna see it's also tied forward to the confession of Peter. So let's dig into the text. And I've taken a little bit of time to explain all that because this is a really unusual healing. Throughout the gospel, Jesus just speaks a word and people are healed. Demons come out and all these things happen. Here, 
it's really unusual. Now, it doesn't start unusually because in verses 22 and 23, a blind man is brought to Jesus. That's not a surprise. We've seen that over and over again in the gospel. They hear Jesus is in the area. They start bringing the blind, the deaf, the sick, the lame, those who are demon-possessed. That is typical. But then suddenly the story seems to veer because everything else is unusual. Number one, Jesus normally just speaks a word and heals. Only, I think, three times in the gospel does he pull people off to the side. When he, when he dismisses everybody so he can raise Jairus' daughter, the healing of the deaf man in um, Mark chapter 7, and now this time. So there's another link there because it's unusual he does that. Secondly, Jesus normally just speaks. This time he uses spit. Now we looked at this a few weeks ago. That only happens twice in the entire ministry of Jesus. The healing of the blind man, and it had already happened with the healing of the deaf man. So it ties those two together. But then really weirdly, for the only time in all of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, hey, did that work? Are you healed? Now, that's meant, Mark is doing this to say, wake up. Pay attention to what's going on here. And we'll come back to why that is happening. But it's, it's meant to be shocking to us. It's meant to say, what Jesus said, what? Because he just speaks and things happen. I mean, you know, he spoke and the universe came into existence. So healing a blind guy wouldn't seem to be quite as difficult. But he's asking if it happened. And Mark is doing this because he's saying, slow down, circle back, pay attention to what's going on here. And that is because he's wanting us to see the healings are to be read in parallel. So consider how many links there are between the healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man. Number one, both of them have verifiable maladies. Everybody knew the guy was deaf and he could not hear. This guy is blind and he cannot see. These are observable things that everybody could see and know. Number two, both of them were brought to Jesus by friends, which has been rare. Other than the paralytic, we don't normally hear that, but that's what's going on here. Number three, Jesus took both of them away from the crowd off into private. Again, very rare in the gospel. Uh, number four, Jesus uses spit in both healings, not only unique to the gospel of Mark, unique in all of the scripture. We don't have any other record of this going on, but both of these healings, he does that. Number five, he tells both of them, this is more typical of Jesus, Shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that this happened to you. But he does that with both of them. And finally, only Mark records these two healings. They're not in Matthew, they're not in Luke, they're not in John, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture, only Mark has them. And all of this is Mark signaling to us, pay attention, you've got this structure going on, read these two together. They're, they're ultimately telling you the same thing. Now, part of why they're linked is because the Messiah was going to heal the deaf and the blind. And we see that many places in the scripture. Let me just give a couple. Number one, Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, verse five, it says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Now I remind us that when we looked at the healing of the deaf man, 
Mark pointed us back to Isaiah 35. I won't go into the Greek word, but you remember he used a word for the way the man spoke, his speech impediment, and it's used twice in the entire Bible, only twice. In Mark 7 with the healing of that man and in Isaiah 35 where it says the tongues of the mute are gonna be unloosed and they're gonna be able to speak again. It's the only two places. And so this passage in Isaiah 35 that is about the Messiah restoring the people of God, Mark has already pointed us to and now it's like, look, I told you that the deaf were going to be healed, now the blind are being healed. But Isaiah 29 says the same thing in a passage where we're told that the Messiah is gonna have to restore a stubborn people who have not wanted to turn to God. The Messiah, we're told, in that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. They're gonna be able to hear the word of God, which by, just as a sideline for a second, can you imagine if you've never been able to hear the reading of God's word and suddenly, your ears are opened. I, I wonder what it was like for that man to go into synagogue the following week and to hear the word of God read to him. But he says this is what the Messiah is gonna do. And secondly, the uh, out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see, which Isaiah picks up later in Isaiah 61 and says, look, there's gonna be recovery of sight for the blind. Those who are in prison are going to be set free. And right here in Isaiah 29, it tells us the same thing, that the blind are going to be able to see. This is part of the restoration of the people to God. So there was that expectation but on top of that, I remind you, in the middle of this structure that Mark's been giving us, you remember Jesus has had his conflict with the Pharisees, and he tells the disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. He's giving them a parable about bread. And the disciples are so brilliant, what is their, what is their understanding of what Jesus means? Man, we forgot to bring more bread. And you remember Jesus is looking at them like, seriously? You've watched me twice, in the wilderness, feed thousands of people out of nothing, and you think that what I'm telling you is you forgot to bring bread. And he concludes it by saying this in Mark 8.18, do you have eyes but fail to see, and do you have ears but you still don't understand, you fail to hear? And at that point in the gospel, the reality is, the disciples do have eyes, but they've not seen. They've not understood. And you remember, he went through and asked them, so the first time we were in the wilderness, how many fish were there and how many loaves? And they answer all the questions right. And how many people did we feed and how many did we pick up? They knew every single fact and still didn't get it. They're still lacking comprehension. And so this is what Jesus is bringing up. And he's saying at this point, even though they have heard his teaching, they have seen his miracles, they've seen his sinless perfection, Jesus said, you still don't understand who I am. At that moment, they still don't get it. They are spiritually deaf and blind and they need healing that only Christ can provide. So this is all kind of there as Mark has set this structure up for us. And it's in that light that we come in and we get this strange healing that goes on. And notice it is a, you know, there is growing sight throughout this section. That's kind of the theme. There is a growing vision that happens. And so there is this two-stage healing that happens here. You know, and 
Jesus has asked him, so can you see? And the guy looks up and says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So the, the healing at this stage is only partial. He's seeing something, but he's not seeing clearly. And Jesus then, we're told, puts his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes are opened, his sight is restored, he sees everything clearly. Notice the progression Mark builds. And actually, in this little section, he uses, I think it's eight different Greek words related to sight. As he keeps building, he's using virtually every word they've got in their language to say, I'm wanting you to understand what's happening here. Uh, and you can kind of see in the one section, his eyes are opened, his sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. There is this growing sight for the man. Now, I'm bringing all this up because when I was a young believer and I didn't necessarily read everything, I, I wasn't paying careful attention. It's like, oh, so I guess maybe when we're praying for people, if they don't get healed, spit on them. You know, <laughs> and, and, and maybe it's going to be this part. Of Jesus is not setting a model here for how healing ministry works. That's not what this story is about. Uh, let me be really, really clear. It's not that Jesus said, wow, this is a healing and this one's being really hard for me. No. He's making a living parable in front of the disciples. Here's a guy who was blind. He has eyes, but he cannot see. And the first stage is he kind of sees. He sees a little bit. He's starting to see something, but then I can touch him again, and his eyes are opened. He beholds clearly. Now he knows what is going on. And so there's this living parable. And what's interesting is Mark then points us forward because there's one difference. I showed all of those things that are the same, but there's one difference between the two healings. And here's the difference. In Mark chapter 7, um, Jesus told him, you know, don't go tell anyone. And here in Mark 8, he sends the guy and says, don't go into the village. And actually, in some old manuscripts, some of the scribes actually added in the words, and don't tell anybody. They're, they're kind of expanding it out a little bit to say this is the point of what Jesus is doing. So both of them, he says, shh. Don't tell anybody that this happened to you, both the deaf man and the blind man. But notice there's a difference because in the story with the deaf man, we're told in verse 37, people are overwhelmed with amazement and they say, he has done everything well. He makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And you know, we're looking back, this is in essence, they're saying, you know what, it's just like in creation, when God stepped back and said, everything is very good. I mean, God had done an astounding job. The people are saying, you know what, Jesus' work of restoration is the same standard. He does everything well. There is this confession and this word of praise to Jesus, but where is it in the story of the blind man? It's not there unless you read on to the next story with the confession of Peter, which is again, he's saying, link these together. We need the confession at the end of the healing, but it's not there with the blind man because I'm teaching you something about the disciples as well. And so we move on 
to the, the next story, and this is exactly what's going on. Mark just abruptly says, so they're walking around these villages, and they're going to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks, so who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, John, Elijah, one of the prophets, which is very interesting because back in Mark chapter 6 with Herod, that's exactly what the people were saying. We've already been told that. So we've got kind of another, you know, doubling. And they do that. But notice what's happening here. The people see something about Jesus. We recognize something's different about this guy. I don't know if he's John the Baptist risen from the dead with miraculous powers. I don't know if he's Elijah that was going to come before the Lord comes. I don't know if he's one of the prophets, but there's something different about this guy. It's kind of like a person who looks like a tree walking around. There's something happening. But please understand, this is not real full sight. Jesus is not John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. He is the Lord for whom John the Baptist was preparing the way. He is not Elijah. He is the capital P prophet for whom Israel was to look. He's not one of the prophets of God from the old covenant. He is the God of the prophets. And so the people who are probably thinking that they're seeing something sight is only partial. And the people would think that comparing Jesus with John or Elijah or one of the prophets would be a pretty big honor, right? I mean, if somebody said, man, you, you are, when I think of you, I think of like Elijah the prophet. That would be a pretty good thing, unless you're Jesus. Because no, he's not like Elijah. Elijah in his best moment might be a little bit like Jesus, but Jesus is not to be compared with someone else. He is in a class by himself. And so what's happening here is notice there is partial sight. They get some things going on, but it's not full. And then we get this amazing moment that is the Mount Everest of the gospel. Because Jesus then turns and says, but what about you? Now, to this point in time, how much have the disciples understood? Right? I mean, right, it's been comforting throughout the gospel because it's like, wow, I'm not as dull as I thought I was because I'm at least as good as these guys are. <laughs> right? They've never gotten anything. The only person that's really seemed to fully understand was the Syrophoenician woman. And even there, we don't know. We know she got the parable, but we don't know how much she understood about Jesus. But Jesus says, who, who do you think I am? What is it you say? Don't tell me what everybody else says. What do you think? And Peter, God bless him, finally says, ah, I think you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we're, we're waiting for. That had to be an amazing moment for our Lord. First time, full sight. I don't think you're John the Baptist you're the one John was pointing to. I don't think you're Elijah. You're the one that Elijah was gonna come and prepare the way before. I don't think you're a prophet. I think you're the one that the prophets told us to be looking for. I think you are the Christ. And this is central in the gospel because if you remember and you go back to the very beginning of the gospel, 
Mark tells us this right up front. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. From that moment until Mark 8, 29, guess how many times the word Christ appears? Zero. Nowhere in the gospel. Mark's told us this is the story, but what we've been doing, Mark is saying, I want you to walk with the disciples. Nobody's understanding. I want you to wrestle with it the same way they are. And before we, you know, it's easy to dump on them, but most of us don't have experience walking around with God in the flesh. I mean, it's not a typical thing. They're trying to figure out who he is. So this idea of the Messiah, Jesus has never even called himself the Christ. He refers to himself as the Son of Man usually because, as we're going to see in a future teaching, Christ has problems associated with it. The term and the ideas they've built up have problems. But it's never been used from Mark 1.1 until Peter says, this is who you are. You are the Christ. And actually from this point forward, it's going to happen six times in the second half of the gospel. It's going to be becoming a much more common term uh, as he's going to pull it out and do this. So Mark is saying, do you understand, this is true sight. Jesus is a great teacher, partial sight. Jesus is this great teacher, partial sight. But that's not who he is. Who he really is, clear sight, is you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And it's kind of interesting because Matthew tells us Peter's full confession is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark again says, hold that thought. We'll get to that. We will come up with Jesus who's the Christ, the Son of God. That's going to be developed in the second half of the gospel. So this is what's been driving throughout the whole time. And so notice how the healing of the blind man is parallel to this confession. At the beginning, there's a journey that they are on. Secondly, there is this partial sight. Thirdly, there is full sight. And then both times, don't tell anybody yet. Now, the reason was he was trying to avoid the crowds in the first one, but the second one, the reason uh, that's going on is he's saying, look, there was partial sight, which is what the people are saying. There is full sight that he is the Christ. Everything else has been wrong. He's not just a great man. He's the Christ, the Son of God, and the King. But there is one other thing. There's a reason why to not tell everyone yet, because if you know Mark's gospel, what's the very next story? You're right, Peter, I am the Christ. So let me explain what that means, Peter. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to beat me, scourge me, flog me, and nail me to a cross and kill me. And what's Peter's response? No, Jesus, let me explain this to you better. Right? So Mark is saying, okay, we're drilling down again, and we're repeating the doublet. We're back to partial sight. You know who he is. You know he's the Christ. You don't yet understand what that means. You've got all kinds of wrong conceptions. And the last half of the gospel is us trying to learn that to be the king means he's the king who's come to die. Not to crush the enemies underfoot in the way we would expect it, but actually to accomplish the will of God through suffering and death. So how do we apply this? What does this mean to us today? How does this word speak to us? It's a really simple question. It's what Mark's been asking in the gospel throughout. Who do you say Jesus is? 
have you truly seen who Jesus is? You could be completely blind and think, you know, I don't think he's anybody. Or you could be having partial sight. There are a lot of people, is this not true? Exactly like there were then. There were people who were saying, you know, there's something special about this guy. He's a great teacher. He's a great example. But Mark is telling us, no. You've, you've missed it. If that's what you think, that is partial sight at best. And there are many, many today things have not changed. That is such a common thing. C.S. Lewis, you know, had his famous trilemma. It was because, uh, you know, people wanted to say, well, I think Jesus is a great teacher. He said, that's nonsense. He, he didn't leave the option open to that, but that's exactly what people want to say today. There are many today who say, Jesus is a great religious thinker. I mean, I rank him up there with Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius. Uh, he's like, you know, the gurus within Hinduism. He's, he's this great thing. And, and I'm honoring Jesus by saying that. No, you're not. I think I'm seeing something about him. Yeah, you're seeing people like they're trees walking around. You're, you're very confused as to what is actually happening around you. And it's not an honor to Jesus. It is actually a dishonor because, again, he's in a class by himself. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist, nor is he one of these other people. He is God in the flesh that has come to us. But let me say, this is essential for us because this is good news. Friends, we do not need a great teacher or moral example. We need a savior. That's what we need. I do not need one who can just teach me truth. I need one who can fulfill God's law, bear my sin, satisfy God's righteous wrath against my sin, and then conquer sin and death in my place. That's what I need. All those other things are only partial. And so the question that Mark poses to us that he's been bringing out throughout the gospel at that point is, okay, there's what others say, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am and what's going on? Do I see and know that Jesus is the Christ, the king who rules over all, who is the only one who can save me from sin and death? Do I see and understand that? That is the essential question. And here's the thing that I remind us. Again, Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew does. Mark wants us to roll through this a little bit. Jesus' reply to Peter is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you've shown how smart you are in figuring this out. Right? Peter, you're just the wisest among men. Is that why Peter figured this out? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And brothers and sisters, that is critical. As we're meditating and doing this, Mark's wanting us to see, could that blind man heal himself? If he was going to see, who was going to make him see? God. When you and I were spiritually blind, can I heal myself? This goes against our American gospel, okay? 
We, we, we want to tout what we can do for ourselves. But brothers and sisters, we can no more heal our spiritual blindness and our spiritual deafness than those people who were brought to Jesus could heal their physical deafness and blindness. And Mark wants us to meditate and understand that. Peter understood this not because he healed his own blindness, but because God had done it. And so the call for you and me, if, if you are here or you're listening and you are not a believer, then I urge you, cry out for God to open your eyes. Ask the Lord to have mercy. Ask the Lord, heal me, give me eyes to see. Even say, all I'm seeing right now is trees walking around. I don't, I don't quite see, I'm seeing something. Ask God, cry out for God to heal. And I wanna also say, if you're here, and this is gonna be for all of us, every one of us have friends, family members, co-workers or neighbors that do not see. Now listen, we should study, we should learn, we should do the best we can to share the gospel, live you know, out the implications of the gospel before them, but brothers and sisters, we have to cry out constantly because if they are blind, we can't explain how to see. We need Jesus to open their eyes. And the good news is, how many in here were blind? How many in here were deaf? I mean, look, I remember when you know I'd grown up down south and I'd started going to church and I could have been like the disciples. I was getting the gold stars by answering all the questions. But do you really get who Jesus is? Answer, no, I don't. And then I remember for me the moment in January 1978 when the eyes were opened and I had left school on a Friday and came back on a Monday and everybody was like, what in the world happened to you over the weekend? Because my eyes had been opened. But this is encouragement for us. The same God that opened your eyes can open the eyes of your friends and your family. The same God that had mercy on you and ultimately, Paul tells us, raised us from the dead. He can have mercy. He can make the dry bones live. He can accomplish that. Our call is to pray constantly that our God can do this. How many of you are concerned even about where our culture's going right now? Hey, look, I'm, I'm all for, you know, my, my friend Bruce, my classmate here is a politician. I'm not against politicians, Bruce. We need godly men as politicians. Are we gonna solve this problem by politics? Brothers and sisters, we need a third great awakening. That's what we need. And, and note the term there, awakening. We, eyes that are closed need to be opened and they need to see. And so work and labor in other ways, but we need to be crying out for the Spirit of God because we are not going to pass a law that says Congress hereby decrees a third great awakening. It doesn't happen that way. Only the Spirit of God can do it. But can God do that? He absolutely can. We need to be crying out to him for that. Now what we're going to do is we're going to be coming here to the table as we do each week. But as we were kind of doing a little bit last week, and we're gonna be doing this week, this is a table of revelation. 
This is a table where Christ can appear to us. Let me grab this. Um, and reveal himself to us at this table. And so we're going to begin by actually reciting the Apostles' Creed, which we sang a version of earlier today, because we're going to do what Peter did that day. The great thing in this moment was his confession of faith. I've understood who you are. And that's what we're going to do together. So if we can stand together, and this is the Apostles' Creed. Now, as we do it, I do want to make one note because I've had this question before. There is a term in here that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and I've had some people say, are we Roman Catholic? And the answer is no. But we are part of the Catholic Church. The word Catholic just means universal. That's all it means. And we are saying we're part of God's church. Great thing about this creed, one of the reasons I love it, Christians have been reciting these words back into the mists of time. And it is good to know the faith did not start with us, and it's not going to end with us. So I invite us to come in and to recite this together. Church, what do you believe? What is your confession of faith? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you are here and you believe what we've just stated, you are standing there with Peter and saying, I believe you're the Christ. If you believe that, you are welcome to this table. You do not have to be a member in our church. You are a member of the Catholic Church, the universal church, part of the communion of saints. And I invite you to come to this table. And as we do so, I want to remind you what we're asking. We're going to see next week that even though Peter had full sight in one way, he developed spiritual cataracts between verses. And how many of us are prone to get spiritual cataracts? <laughs> Everything starts becoming a little dark and fuzzy. But I want to remind you, we don't just come to a table that is just a ceremony. This is a sacrament. The Lord is here, and the Lord ministers. And I remind you the verse in Luke chapter 24. I mentioned this last week. We're on the day of the resurrection. The two guys going down the road to Emmaus. And the Lord has opened the scriptures and explained why the Christ had to come and had to suffer from all of the scripture. And then we're told he's at the table and he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And notice what it says, their eyes were opened. Don't come for a ritual. Come to have your eyes opened.
to behold Christ. That is what you need, and that is what I need. So we're going to, in a moment after I break the bread and pour out the cup, we are going to have the elements coming forward, grab them and hold them, and we will take them together and cry out and say, Lord, I don't want a ritual. I want to be fed by your hand. I want to see you. For brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Father, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ who took flesh to work salvation for us. We confess that he alone can save us from sin and that he is fully sufficient to save all who trust in him. We thank you that he not only died, but that he is alive forevermore, and he is the very one feeding our souls now with the true living bread. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you suffered and died for us and for our salvation. We confess that we have no hope of salvation apart from your blood, and that your blood is fully sufficient to cleanse us from all sin now and forevermore. Lord, we confess that we sin in thought, word, and deed daily, but we are grateful that you are our great prophet, priest, and king, and that you cleanse us, and that we now receive the cup of life from you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and I'm going to cry out to the Spirit of God to come and be upon us, and I encourage you to reach out again and receive from Him. Holy Spirit, you are the Lord and giver of life. You spoke through the prophets and apostles, and you revealed Christ to us. Lord, thank you that when we were blind, when I was blind, you opened my eyes and you allowed me to see and hear the truth. Thank you that today you have ministered to us in word and sacrament, and you have freshly revealed to us our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray now 
that you would bind this revelation, this fresh seeing of Christ to our hearts. Lord, give us full sights. Remove from us any spiritual uh, cloudiness or not seeing clearly that we might behold Jesus in all of his glory. We pray that you would strengthen us as we go forth from here so that we might have clear vision, true understanding, and hearts that long to serve our King each day. Holy Father, we ask all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the uh, unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and God's people say, Amen. amen. Now receive the blessing of your God. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, having the eyes of your heart enlightened in order that you may know him and the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, your eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.